The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. I'm Dave Chilton, the Wealthy Barber, and I'm ready to start digging deep. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Welcome to Digging Deep, presented by Zen Books and Abacus Data. This is the latest in our series of one-on-one conversations with thoughtful, interesting, accomplished people in many different fields. We talk to astronauts, authors, Olympic champions, entrepreneurs, musicians, and more. We explore their stories. We talk about their challenges, their defining moments. And we all get to learn from them the powerful lessons that we can apply to our own lives. Here's how we do it. We start off with some rapid-fire questions that reveal little pieces of information about the guest, and then we start digging deep into those stories and life lessons. I'm really excited about our guest today, David Chilton. I have been a big fan of David Chilton for a long time since his first book was published. David, of course, is the author of The Wealthy Barber, which became the best-selling book in Canadian history. He is a phenomenal storyteller, as you will hear. David is also an investor and entrepreneur and was a venture capitalist on the TV show Dragon's Den for several years. In our very funny and insightful conversation, David shares a ton of business and personal advice in his incredible storytelling style. He talks about the lessons he has learned from his father, about how to overcome obstacles and have a positive outlook, even in the worst of circumstances. In fact, he shares a great story about his dad. I love this story about his father being pickpocketed in France and what that taught him about what he calls getting to acceptance. Getting to acceptance. That is a really powerful lesson for me. David also talks about why he doesn't have a lot of stuff, how he stays happy, how he makes his investment decisions how he carries out due diligence, and the value of testing your work on people before you go public with it. He also talks about the role of luck in his life, which is a topic that is particularly relevant to me, and why he returns every single phone call and email, and much, much more. Now, one last thing before we get started. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe and post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And also, share this podcast with your network. And if you're looking for more information about this episode of the show, including links to anything that we reference in our discussion, if you want to read my daily blog where I post every single day of the year, or subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Dig, which has five very quick items that I've learned about each week, please go to our website, letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. You can also find a link to my TEDx talk. Now, let's start digging deep with author, entrepreneur, and incredible storyteller, David Chilton. David, it's so great to welcome you to Digging Deep. I am a big fan. I have had the pleasure of speaking with you before. I have read so much of what you have written, and uh, you've had a big impact on my personal finances and my approach to business. And I've enjoyed watching you uh, and the way you approach things. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation and, and glad we could spend this time together. That's a lot of pressure, but thank you. <laughs> All right. So we're going to dive into some very quick questions and answers. Uh, what is your fondest childhood memory? Going to Detroit Tiger games, in fact, more specifically, entering Tiger Stadium, going up the ramp and taking that first turn where you see the beautiful green field, went with my father, my grandfather, think of it often, by far my number one memory. I love that. Yeah, there's that moment where you can just catch a glimpse of the bright green field through the tunnel that leads out to the seats, right? And it's... Exactly. And I mean, I loved that feeling. I miss that stadium. And I, I really do think of that often still to this day. Who was your hero when you were 10 years old? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I did follow sports very carefully. Uh, Detroit sports, I would say, like a lot of people, my parents have always been my heroes. But I've never really had one or two people, even in the sporting world, that I've worn their jersey or read everything I could about them. Had a lot of people I've admired and respected, but no one person really jumps to mind. 
maybe now as an adult, Leanne Cusack. Maybe <laughs> Leanne Cusack. But I'm as a child, I didn't know her, of course. Yeah. I didn't know her, so it couldn't have yeah. been her. That's our that's our mutual friend who works in broadcasting here in Ottawa. Um, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I didn't know, but interestingly, by the time I was in high school, I always thought that speaking, professional speaking, would play a role in whatever I did. I wasn't sure I was heading toward finance at that point. I thought about politics. I thought about engineering because I was a math geek. Wasn't sure what specific direction I was going to go, but I was pretty confident speaking would play a role in it. What is your life story in six words? Absolutely the luckiest man ever. Absolutely the luckiest man ever. Okay, that's that's uh, that's five words, actually. There you go. What is your greatest mistake, and what did you learn from it? Twice in my career, I'm embarrassed to admit, twice, I've made the same mistake. I have uh, had very, very in-detail contract negotiations where I didn't really plan for the worst-case scenario, and they both came true. To make the same mistake twice, is unacceptable. I'm embarrassed by it, but that's definitely been something that's hounded me in my career. In fact, to this day, I still think back on those negotiations and how I missed something I shouldn't have. So the lesson there obviously is plan for the worst case scenario when you're negotiating a contract, even if you don't think it's going to happen, right? Even if it's a very low odds of happening, you have to plan for it. And I should have listened to my lawyer more in the first case. It's nothing. I'll make other mistakes, but that one I won't make again. For what do you feel most grateful? I don't mean to sound corny, but honestly, everything. I've been very blessed. Born in Canada during a peaceful time, economic expansion. I have amazing parents. My mom passed a couple of years ago, but both huge influences in my life. I fell into the right friend group. I've been remarkably healthy. And then, let's be honest, I've only really had one good idea, but it came when I was in my 20s. And so because of the Wealthy Barber success, it opened up all kinds of other opportunities for me. I've just been a very fortunate person, and I truly am grateful for all of it. I recognize that luck is shone on me and it keeps me in good spirits at all times. So that may make the next question difficult, which is what has been the best year of your life so far and why? Well, I'm always hoping it's next year. You know, you're always hoping for bigger and better things. I haven't lost my energy at all. Still trying to be impactful, still trying to grow very much like my father that way. But if I had to pick one year from all of the past years, I think going back to 89, one of my two children was born that year. He was healthy. Courtney came along two years later, but the same year that Scott came along, the Wealthy Barber came out and it was so much fun and so exciting and so challenging and took me in all kinds of new directions. And, you know, still at a point in my life where you're associating with all your friends, you're still playing touch football, slow pitch, you're in those early years of marriage, just so many positive things happening simultaneously. So that year was a great year for sure. What was the toughest year of your life so far and why? Uh, three years ago, my mother passed away. I said two years ago, a moment ago, but it was three years ago. And simultaneously to that, we had a couple friends in their 50s get very sick and one of them didn't make it. And, uh, you know, it was a big adjustment. Now, of course, I'm 59. A lot of my friends are in their 60s. And sadly, you have to become accustomed to some extent to dealing with illnesses among your friend group and compartmentalizing and being as supportive as you can, but not letting it overwhelm you because it's a part of life as you age. But I found that year to be the most challenging for sure. My mother was a, a huge part of my life. And so losing her was an adjustment, no question. But again, even that went relatively well. She suffered very little. We all got to be with her for the two weeks that she was sick in the hospital. And for the most part, I even have fond memories of those last 14 days. Again, I've been very lucky in general. I, I haven't had many bad years. Uh, I've really been very fortunate. What is the most important lesson that you would share with other people? Well, I mean, I've learned a lot from my father. I mean, my mother was influential too, but my father has taught me a lot of things. And of all the things that he's driven home repeatedly, it's get to acceptance. So when something bad happens in your life, you have to accept it right away. You can't wish it away. You can't live in the past. You can't live with regret. Instead, you've got to accept what's happening and then figure out what's the most positive way to go forward from here. And focus your energies on what you can influence in the moment and going forward. Don't live in the past. And again, don't let those types of things overwhelm you. And I've actually worked at that skill. He's mastered it. I have not mastered it, but I've worked hard at it. And I think it's helped me to be a positive, upbeat person, and hopefully to bring that positivity and that upbeat nature to other people. It's a great lesson. Uh, what would people be most surprised to learn about you? Easy question. I'm a huge loner. 
And people are always surprised at that uh, because I'm on stage a lot. I like people. I tend to be very friendly and outgoing when I'm in the public environment. None of that's fake. I really do enjoy it. But I love spending a lot of time alone. I've always been that way. You know, I live alone. I have for a long, long time. I spend a lot of my social time alone. I have a lot of hobbies that involve being alone, et cetera. So I think that's what catches people off guard the most. What's your secret talent? I have none. I'm one of the least talented people I've ever crossed paths with. And I'm not even kidding. It's funny. And most of the things that I'm bad at, and that's a lot of things, I'm actually exceptionally bad at. So when I was in grade nine, I had Mrs. Kobayashi as my art teacher. She was very well known and very well respected. And she said at the start of the year, I can draw some talents out of everybody. Nobody fails art. Stick with it. At the end of the year, she said, I could draw no talent out of you whatsoever. And I will give you 70% if you never take art again. And I said, deal. So I'm a person of very limited talent. I have no hidden talent. If I had a talent, I would trumpet it everywhere, trying to show off that I had a talent. But sadly, there's not a lot there. <laughs> All right. What is your boldest prediction for the future? I'm very optimistic about the future. I think we're going to have challenges. I think the very tough year we've all been through and the political challenges down in the States and some of the negative things you hear from all over the world have colored us. And we don't realize right now there are a lot of good things happening. A lot of the technological breakthroughs will combine with each other and lead to all kinds of big things going forward. Most trends, mega trends in the world in terms of lowering poverty rates, higher high school graduation rates, better nutrition levels, et cetera, are positive, and I think they're going to continue to swing upward. So I think life is going to get better, despite all the negativity you hear, and that 10 years from today, we'll be in a better position than we are today. What would be the message of your commencement address if you were giving a speech to a bunch of graduating students, uh, say, in the next year? Well, it's interesting. I'm going to go back. If I had been given at the time that I graduated, I would have said to my graduating class, this is the most talented group of people I've ever seen come together in one school at one time. You have an obligation to society, as dramatic as that sounds, to pull the best out of yourself and be big influences, big positive influences, and they have. So I graduated with a uniquely talented group of people, and they've gone on to big things and really helped others in many, many ways. Now I would say the same type of message I said last answer, and that is stay positive. There's all kinds of opportunity out there. Look to make a positive difference. The fun in life is helping others. And so great if you can make a lot of money too, but focus on helping others. What major problems are out there? How can we innovate and start providing solutions? How do you make a difference? How do you keep growing? That's my father's big theme is how do you get better every day? How are you constantly trying to improve? So some of the same old fashioned corny messages you hear at many commencement speeches, but I try to wrap them in humor and stories and certainly talk about some of my dad's philosophies. What's been a recent epiphany for you or something maybe that you've changed your mind about? I realized this July that after 35 years, I'm never going to be a good golfer. This has <laughs> finally hit me. I got to acceptance in July that I am what I am. And so it was a negative epiphany, but it was an epiphany nevertheless. And, but for the most part, you know, I'm always trying to get major learning experiences. I very much picked up from my parents the importance of continuing to read and challenge yourself in new areas. So I don't know if I have epiphanies as much as I'm constantly learning about areas I didn't know anything about. And, you know, you're looking up, well, why do boats float and all those types of things. I've never stopped doing that. It's, it's fun and I've enjoyed it immensely trying to always grow. Other than something you've written, what book are you most likely to recommend to other people? Huh, that's a good question. I think the book that most influenced me was back in 1987, 88, a guy named John Kremer wrote a book called A Thousand and One Ways to Market Your Books all about selling your books into unusual places, et cetera. And I love the book. I read it literally four times. And I always tell people that I gave John $19.95 for his book, and it made me hundreds of thousands of dollars because it led to a lot of the ideas that we were able to take and put into the Wealthy Barber marketing approach, and, and it worked. And so that book was certainly the most influential of all. I've enjoyed a lot of business books over the years, and I still try to read maybe 25 books a year. I don't read the 100 books a year that I at one point read, but reading has been a huge part of my life. It's given me a lot of joy. I've stolen a lot of ideas from books. I've also mixed ideas from books and tried to come up with a different way to position them together. And I tell young people all the time, you've got to turn to books. Somebody's put a lot of work into writing them. A publisher's gotten involved. Usually they are quite strong. You'll never like every book you read. And a lot of books, frankly, take way too many pages to say what they're going to say, but they're gems in most of these books that can make a big difference. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you about that. And there's such a bargain if you think about it, right? Like, say, for example, you're really interested in in Bill Gates and what he has to share with the world. And and Bill Gates said to you, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write down all my, my best ideas or I'm going to write down my left by my life story and all the lessons I've learned from it. I'm going to put that all together for you in a package and send it to you. Uh, what would somebody pay for that? And you can get that for basically 25 bucks, right? That's really well said, and I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, you look at Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett's partner, who's a yeah. brilliant, brilliant man, not just investing, and he's got Uncle Charlie's Almanac. Well, everybody should read that book. It's all about how to think better and how to use mental models and how to conduct yourself. It's a fantastic book, and I love reading all of those things. They really, as I said earlier, played a huge impact in my life. All right, David, I appreciate you answering those questions. We're going to take a short break, and in just a moment, we'll start digging deep with David Chilton. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you a little bit more about the presenting sponsor of Digging Deep, ZenBooks. ZenBooks is Canada's go-to cloud accounting firm. They are not your typical accounting firm. I know the founders, Colin and Eric. I've worked with them for several years. And here's why I think you should consider working with them too. First of all, they bring a fresh, unique, modern approach to what is a very old-fashioned industry. These guys were working remotely and in the cloud long before it became cool. ZenBooks also uses technology to your advantage. I think this is really important. They give you the tools and analysis you need to monitor your business in real time. That's so valuable right now when everything changes so quickly. Yes, they're a virtual accounting firm, but that doesn't mean they're offshore, and it doesn't mean they're inattentive. ZenBooks combines the efficiency and effectiveness of a cloud accounting service with all the benefits that you'd want from a trusted advisor, high-level advice, and strategic support. Now, here's what I think is going to happen if you work with ZenBooks. You'll probably start out taking advantage of their cutting-edge cloud accounting solutions, but in the long run, I think you'll stay with them because of their strategic guidance and problem-solving. Among their core values, they specifically list being candid and proactive. Isn't that exactly what you want from a trusted advisor? Look, even if you're already working with an accountant or a bookkeeper, or you have some accounting staff on your team, I think you should still talk to ZenBooks and learn more about their tools and their expertise. Check out ZenBooks at zenbooks.ca. That's zenbooks.ca. Digging Deep is all about helping you make better decisions, and so is Abacus Data. Most leaders struggle to connect with and engage their audiences. Why is that? It's because they aren't sure how they think and feel and how they will react. Abacus Data can give you the strategic insights you need to make better decisions and to make them confidently. Here's a good example. A major national union was recently negotiating a new agreement for its thousands of members. This had the potential to be a very difficult process. There were many competing interests. So they brought in Abacus Data to conduct thorough and detailed research of their members to learn exactly where they stood, what they were thinking, what they wanted. And as a result, they were able to secure a strong new deal that was accepted overwhelmingly in a national vote. Abacus Data helps all of its clients understand what's really happening in the minds of their employees, clients, and stakeholders. They help them avoid costly blind spots. And they're really good at what they do. In fact, Abacus Data was one of the most accurate pollsters in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Make the one decision that will improve all of your other decisions. Let Abacus Data help you move forward with confidence and clarity. Go to abacusdata.ca. That's abacusdata.ca. David, you write a lot about your family. I've seen some of your comments on social media, and you've spoken about your parents already. Uh, you were obviously very close as a family, and they mean a lot to you. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents and your family when you were growing up, what your childhood was like, what 
what your family was like. Well, I grew up in a Leave It to Beaver type household. Had a sister three years old, where she and I are still very close to this day. Brilliant woman, very funny. She had a great skill set in the language area, and I was more of the math and sciences area. My mom and dad grew up in Sarnia, Ontario, uh, were high school sweethearts, got married, taught for a year down in Toronto, and then my father got involved in the education system in Kitchener-Waterloo. My mother got involved in the auxiliary uh, efforts at the hospital and ended up championing those rising to the presidency, and my father became a principal at a very young age at a high school, and they just amazing people, positive people. Uh, always looking at things from a different perspective. They really had a lot of innovative ideas and everything from time management to how to approach psychologically different challenges in life. And so I was very, very, very lucky to grow up in that environment. Also lived in a neighborhood where I happened to make a lot of very good friends that I kept my entire life. I still hang around a lot of the people that I knew back in grade one, if you can believe it, not just high school, but grade one. And so just very fortunate. I grew up in a very, very good time too. It was economically strong, Kitchener-Waterloo, where I spent most of my time, I also lived in Sarnia in the summers, but KW has been economically prosperous to the nth degree throughout my life because of its diversification and then the two universities, the college, et cetera. So again, as I said earlier, I've been very fortunate. Things have really fallen my way. The most important thing that's fallen my way was the tremendous parents. And that was so wise to select them as parents <laughs> from all the people out there. Yeah. Best decision you ever made. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and your dad, you, you write a lot on social media about your dad. You shared this story. I'm hoping you can share it today about your dad getting pickpocketed. I think it was in Paris. And, uh, it's such a great story because it reveals so much about him and, and the outlook on life that he has. Right. Yeah. As I said earlier, he believes getting to acceptance quickly on negative things is absolutely vital and that you can't let them overwhelm you. You have to say, this is the way it is. How do I deal with it in the most positive manner? And the story that I told on Twitter that I'm going to be using in the upcoming book is that he and my son went about 10 years ago to Paris. Great vacation. You know, Scotty's 20 at the time. My dad's almost 80. Wide age separation, but off they go. They had a wonderful time. I think it was the second last day, maybe even the last day, my father's pickpocketed on public transit. He's stripped of all of his money and his passports, calls back home and leaves a voicemail and my sister and I race over to listen to it at my mother's command and it's hilarious because my dad seems quite excited that all of this has happened and goes on and on about how talented the thieves are and how he can't believe they were able to do this without him noticing and they're marvelously talented people off we go now to the consulate in the bank trying to get money get passports what an adventure and so of course when he gets back we're all astonished he handled it this well and his basic argument is look i could have let it be a big negative and ruin my trip but why would i do that the passport's gone no matter what the money's gone no matter what why not make the best of it enjoy paris and all it has to offer and try to turn it into as he said a, a great challenge and, and a great adventure and that's my dad's approach in life in general you know he and my mother were married forever today they had a very strong marriage but when my mother passed my dad did a relatively short amount of breathing because it's moved forward from here. That's the way my mother would have wanted it. And he's very, very good at that and works hard at it. And I, as I said earlier, he's mastered it. Yeah. And it sounds so, uh, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I love that story and, and, you know, it's, but it's so easy to say and so hard to do. I totally buy into that. And yet I fall into the trap every time. Right. I agree. But my father says we truly have to work at it. It is a skill. And like all skills, you have to hone it. And so as you're confronted with negatives, as you're confronted with challenges, you're working on the skill, the ability to compartmentalize, the ability to accept, the ability to put it in the rear view mirror. And again, one of the things he does very well that allows him to do that is he's got a tremendous focus on what can I do from here to make this the best it can be, not just for myself, but for others. And by putting such a strong focus on that and wanting to help and wanting to make a positive difference, that blocks him to some extent from dwelling on whatever event led to this. And so he's just very, very good at that. And I really have worked hard on it over the years. And I haven't caught him from behind, but I'm getting there. And I think that a lot of my friends, if something goes wrong in their lives, even something legitimately really bad, they haven't worked as hard on that. And now we're seeing it. I mean, that's funny. But even my friends who've come to know my father, I think have come to appreciate his philosophies and started picking up on them to their benefit. Yeah. Great story and a very, very powerful lesson. Maybe one of the most important in life, period. Right. Um, Agree. Yeah.
Um, and I want to talk about your outlook because obviously greatly influenced by your parents, including your father. And, um, and, and I have to say, this is one of the things that I have always admired about you. It's easy. You know, if, if I say to somebody, I really like David Chilton, they could say, oh, you know, hugely best-selling author, uh, you know, business person, investor, you know, public speaker. Those are all things that, that, uh, you could admire, but you have that in common with other people, uh, who are successful, uh, I think what what you st- what causes you to stand out to me, and what I really admire about you is the outlook that you have. You're very self-deprecating. You you don't think you don't take things too seriously. Or I guess what I would say is you you take your work seriously, but you don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, and there's just this great vibe that comes from you uh, when you're writing and when you're speaking that you don't have all the answers that, uh, but you do have something to share. And I find that I, I, I strive to be more like that all the time. Uh, and I just wonder where that came from and how you cultivate that. Well, thank you, first off. But secondly, I really think that uh, a lot of uh, that comes from hanging around the people you grew up with. They keep you pretty humble. And if you're hanging around the guys and the women that you knew back when you were in grade one, eight, 12, and first university, you're not getting gawky. And you're never thinking you have all the answers because that group won't allow for it. And I think, again, we go back to my parents, but also for whatever realized reason, I, I have realized I've been very fortunate. Like I wasn't kidding earlier when I said I've really only had one great idea. The key for me was that the wealthy barber came out when I was so young. So traditionally, somebody writes a book, it's at the end of their career, and it's sharing all of their experiences. I happened to write mine when I was young, and it led to all of my experiences. So I was very fortunate on that front. And I try to use a lot of humor and none of this is fake. I really am in a good mood all the time. In fact, I say to people and they think I'm kidding, but I'm not. I still have trouble sleeping some nights because I'm so excited about the next day. I'm always looking forward to what I'm up to and what's next, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I feel very blessed on all of those fronts. And I think my parents did a very good job too with both kids of letting us fail. So I always say this, but my father was the opposite of a helicopter parent, like to the nth degree. He wanted you to fail. He wanted you to make your mistakes. He wanted you to fall down because then you have to learn to get back up again. And he was very much into that. And I think that really helped in life. I, there's no way I would have written a book at age 25 had my parents not let me fail at other things, et cetera. I remember when I was in grade four, I was a uh, particularly poor hockey player. And I said I wanted to go for the school team and we were loaded. And my dad knew I had no chance of making it. And he drove me in and you don't make it, you fail. And that's that. And I mean, he wasn't trying to protect me in any way. I wasn't good enough to make the team. And he would say that quite bluntly. And you need to hear those types of things. And so you're encouraged to try. But if you fail, that's all part of the lesson. And I think that really helped me in life. Can you talk more about the role of luck in your life? Because this is something that uh, uh, this, this, I really share this outlook. You and I are both uh, in our 50s. We're, we're white men who were born in Canada uh, to loving parents in, you know, at a time of uh, largely of prosperity and peace and, and good fortune. It's like being born on third base in a lot of ways, right? And, you know, when, when we say things like that, some people get upset because they, they think that we're trying to say that it had nothing to do with hard work. It had nothing to do with initiative. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm very proud of the fact that I worked hard. I'm very proud of the fact that I wrote The Wealthy Barber at a young age. But I'm also aware of the fact that the table was set for me. Let's be honest. As you pointed out, we were both born in a peaceful country, economically prosperous. I had amazing parents, not just good parents, but amazing parents. Those are all huge aids. A lot of your confidence to do these types of things flows from the fact that you fell into that type of environment. And the other thing I mentioned earlier is I've been remarkably healthy. I got sick last December with the flu. I couldn't remember being sick before. Like it might've been 30 something years ago. The last time I was sick, I'm talking even a headache. So when you get that lucky on the health front too, it really helps with your energy and your ability to get out there and do different things. And even little things, like I was born with a very low need for sleep compared to the vast majority of people. Well, that's quite lucky. I didn't do anything to earn that. In fact, you know, I don't even have a particularly healthy diet. So I think a lot of things have fallen my way. I'm still proud of the fact I've capitalized on that. And so I'm not trying to talk down the importance of hard work and taking chances. I believe in all of that. But when you have things fall your way, you have more of an obligation to do that. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can work hard and be proud of what you've accomplished. And you can also be lucky. In fact, they often work hand in hand. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you earned the highest mark on the Canadian securities course in 1985. How did you manage to do that? That is being a complete geek. 
It really is. When I was about 16, 17 years old, I started reading every book I could on investing and on financial planning, particularly on investing, which is funny because I ended up swinging more over to the financial planning area. But I read everything I could on investing when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And I mean everything, like literally every book that came out back then, I would read it. So when I signed up for the Canadian Securities Course as a young broker back in 1984, I called down and I'll never forget the conversation because everybody hated taking that course and all the associated assignments. And the young fellow on the other line said, you don't have to write the assignments. There's a no assignment version, but you have to get 70% to pass instead of 60. And I said, you got to be kidding. I'll take that for sure. And I said, when's the next exam? And I think it was Monday or Tuesday we were speaking. He said, it's this Friday. I said, fantastic. I'll take it. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? You haven't even got the course materials yet. We're sending them down the box. I said, no, I, it's okay. I know all this type of stuff because I'm such a geek. And I drove down a couple of days later and wrote it. And that kind of stuff came naturally to me, which is funny because as I pointed out earlier in the interview, almost nothing comes naturally to me. I'm not talented. But for whatever reason, anything to do with the mix of numbers and money makes sense to me. So if I'm trying to understand how a complicated pension product works or an option strategy, all of it makes sense to me. Something in my wiring allows me to grasp that. So I wish I had the same talent with music or singing or golfing, but I don't. But I have it in that area. And so it was a lot of fun. But again, it's funny, it didn't play that much of a role in my career because I moved out of the investment arena and more towards the general financial planning. And that's where I focused for a number of years until I got involved in a wide variety of projects like the cookbooks, the two women out of Ottawa, et cetera. And I started getting involved more in small businesses of all types than just finance. So let's talk about the wealthy barber phenomenon. Uh, and as you reflect back on that now, some time has passed. Obviously, you've had lots of time to think about it. Uh, how, how exactly did that happen? And, and what was at play there? What were the factors that led to that book being so successful? And not, I want to underscore for people like it wasn't just, hey, this is a best selling book This did really well, or it was the it was the best book that year. I mean, at the, I believe it is, it, it's still, if it's not the, it's in the top two or three best-selling books in Canadian history, right? Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny because a lot of times people think it came out of the gate and it got off to this quick start, but that honestly is not the way it happened. In 1989, it came out in January and the first year was good. It sold 20 something thousand copies, including some special sales, but it wasn't unbelievable. It wasn't the kind of thing you were going to say, well, this is going on to set records. And in fact, in the second year during RSP season, when financial books used to sell exceptionally well, it actually slowed down a bit. And I remember thinking in March of 1990, okay, that was nice. We're up to 30 something thousand copies, but you know, I've got to focus now on speaking and doing some other things. But for whatever reason, the word of mouth suddenly kicked in and it went to a whole new level. And in April, May of 1990, it started selling 20 and 30 and 40,000 copies a month. And once that happened, then the word of mouth started taking off. And then, of course, you're atop the bestseller list. You're getting calls for all the interviews and all the speeches. And that just compounds the awareness. And it takes off even further still. I think even there, there was some pretty big luck involved. There was very little competition. There was only two or three Canadian-oriented financial planning books. Chris Snyder from the ECC group. Remember, Brian Costello had a book out. But I really believe there was three of us. Now there's 33, there's 63, there's 103. And the second thing is the baby boomers were all hitting their 20s and starting to learn how to save. And so you had all these things kind of come into play at the same time. People wanted to become more aware. They liked the story format because it was less dry, less intimidating. But all that being said, even with hindsight, it's a little tough to understand how it became what it did, you know, how it shot up to those levels. And I still kind of shake my head, shake my head at the whole thing and launched a version down the States and did a PBS TV special in 91 and 92 and enjoyed that immensely. That was a fun experience too. And it really led me to all kinds of things. Even when you think of Janet and Greta Podleski and the Looney Spoons books, I mean, that opportunity directly flowed from the success of The Wealthy Barber because they said, can you help us self-publish? So, so many good things in my life came from The Wealthy Barber. Very fortunate. What were you trying to do with that book? What was your original goal in writing it? It's funny because I, I actually liked a couple of the American books at the time. Now, it wasn't ideal because they didn't cover the Canadian tax law angle, but I thought they were very well done. And I bought them and I would give them out to clients as I was a financial educator and they wouldn't read them. They thought they were too dry and too intimidating. It didn't matter that the information was fairly good because they wouldn't give it a chance. They just didn't like the formats and the way that people were trying to educate. So I thought, okay, I've got to make this more fun, basically. And I started working on a book called The Ultimate Guide to Losing Money. And it was a humorous look at all the mistakes that Canadians make with their money and how to remedy those mistakes. Short, punchy, 
you know, paragraph long chapters in some cases, more the way you see some of the books now. You didn't then. All books were text heavy. And then one night, I know all this sounds corny, but I was watching Cheers. And I said, I think I'm going to use a fictional approach instead. And I originally called the book The Wealthy Bartender. And I wrote for two or three weeks set in the bar. But, you know, you're trying to keep the book realistic. You're trying to draw people into the characters. And therefore, you've got all the things that normally happen in a bar. Too much drinking, a bar fight. It was all very distracting. So I moved it over to the barbershop. And I remember the day it happened. It was a Thursday. I drove over to see my father after he got home from uh, the school he was the principal at. I sat down with, uh, with him and I said, here's what I'm trying to do. What do you think? Well, it's funny. My dad was truly brilliant. You know, he's really a brilliant guy, but he does not have good business instincts. And after I laid out the whole book, he said, I think it's kind of stupid. And I knew then I had a winner because he's never right on this stuff. <laughs> and so I went home and worked on the book. But, you know, I was only helping to sell 10,000 copies because that's how many you had to print to get a decent, decent print cost. There was no such thing as short run printing then. And so I had to print 10,000 copies. And I, I only admitted this years later, but I talk about it openly now. I had to cash my RRSP out to print The Wealthy Barber. And so the whole book says, never touch your RRSP. <laughs> and I'm cashing my own out to print the book. And so and then it came out in, in uh, as I say, the January and picked up slowly. And people seemed to really like it. The feedback was very positive, but it didn't go quickly until that second year. And then it went from there. Amazing. And when you look back on the wealthy barber phenomenon, uh, are, are there lessons that you think can be drawn from that, that, that you can share with other people? Well, certainly a lot of business lessons on the book marketing front. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I was so excited to work with Janet and Greta, because they had the energy to take a lot of the things that we learned, worked with wealthy barber marketing and move them over to the cookbook genre. And they had the charisma to do things better than I did it for sure. And of course, those books ended up becoming very successful. So there was a lot of business lessons that I learned there. And it also got me into some interesting habits that I've stuck with. I'll give you an example. To this day, I still return every call and email. And it's crazy. I mean, it takes me hours and hours and hours a day, but it's something I've stuck with. And I think it's really helped me because you learn a lot. You learn a lot about what small business people are struggling with, or you learn what people don't understand on the finance front or what they're struggling with in the book area. And selfishly, that's helped me to make decisions in my own business career. But also I've enjoyed meeting all the people. Some days it's a little bit overwhelming for sure. There's no question about it. But in general, that's a decision I'm glad I've stuck with is to return all the calls and all the emails. And I've met so many wonderful people and you travel all over the country and you're speaking in Halifax and somebody comes up and says, Hey, I was the woman who called you six months ago. You were talking to my son about his business. And I've got a great kick out of that. I've really, really enjoyed it. I can vouch for that because uh, I remember one time we were putting on an event in Ottawa. You actually did come and speak at one of our events, but this time it wasn't going to work. And um, and I emailed you to ask you if you were available and you made a point of calling me to tell me that you weren't, uh, when you could have easily just written back and said, no. Um, and I always appreciated that. And here, you know, it's probably 10 years later and I still remember that. So it, it makes an impression on people. And I, I think it, it's, you know, when you, when you treat people well, there's always value in that in the moment and, and long-term, right? Yeah, thanks. And I mean, I really do think selfishly, it's been better for me than it was for them. I learned more from taking the call in many cases than I helped them out. And, you know, and Jan and Greta picked up that approach and went with it to the nth degree. I mean, they returned every single cooking question and all the types of things. I mean, I think one of the reasons they did so well is because people knew they were genuinely nice people who wanted to help others to eat more healthfully. I mean, nobody ever questioned their authenticity and they backed it up by returning all the calls and emails. And, you know, many times I was with Greta when she was customizing recipe for a woman who had a celiac daughter. Well, how many cookbook authors do you think are going to do that? Yeah. And so that kind of outreach really, uh, I think, helped them. And it, even if it didn't help them financially, because there's a big time trade off, it certainly helped them to be happy. I mean, you're helping other people and you get a huge boost out of that yourself. And, and so I was always very proud of the way they handled themselves. So how do you think of yourself now? Uh, do you think of yourself as an author, an entrepreneur, an investor? Like what, how, how would you describe your life now? You know, it's strange. I've never thought of myself really as an author, even though I've written two books and I enjoy writing. I find it very challenging, but I enjoy it because the books were so far spaced out. I never really thought of myself that way. I certainly thought of myself as an educator and a speaker and Speaking is the one thing I've done throughout my entire career, no matter what area I've moved to, whether it's been Dragon's Den or working in a small business space or working with Janet Greta, the speaking has been the one constant. So I, I do think of myself that way. 
Right now, I've got a new business in the M&A space, helping smaller companies to sell. I really enjoy that. But I've never really defined myself by any one or two words, except speaker. I've always, as I say, done that part and really enjoyed it. I've missed that during COVID. I haven't missed getting there. You know, all those years of traveling and working nights, it's kind of nice now to be at home and a little bit more relaxed during the evenings. But I do miss being on stage and I miss meeting the audiences. So how do you go about evaluating opportunities? What's your process for that? Whether it's an investment opportunity, a business opportunity, a partnership, uh, how, what's, the, what's your approach? I've done my own due diligence over the years, including on all the minority investments I've made in companies. The problem is it's very time consuming. And so I've had gaps in my career where that was fine. I focused on that. Now that I'm actually up and running a business that's going well, I don't have as much time to do it. So you're having to say no to a lot of things that may well be great opportunities, but you don't have the two, three, four weeks it takes to evaluate them well. And so that's always tricky. It's finding the time to make these decisions. I haven't always done that well. And, you know, there's been occasions for sure where I've let it overwhelm my life a little bit and haven't seen friends as much as I should or gotten involved in some other things. And so striking all these balances is never easy. And even at almost 60 years old, I still don't do it perfectly. I definitely make some judgment calls that aren't great on that time management front. But I have gotten better in the last couple of years of saying no, because I know evaluating the opportunity itself is going to block me from doing what I'm already doing as well as I'd like to do it. And in the case, for example, the new business where you're helping people to sell their companies, well, obviously you want to do a fantastic job. This is a, a pivotal time in their lives. It's their most important sale. So you can't be distracted and involved in all kinds of other projects. So what's that due diligence process like? What You say you do it yourself. So, so what do you do and what are you looking for when you're evaluating an investment opportunity? Well, you'll find this very interesting doing what you do for a living. I, I think one of the reasons I had some success doing due diligence is that I approached it almost more like a journalist than an investor. And so obviously I'm going to go through the financial statements, the projections and the types of things that are normally done. But beyond that, I would call up competitors. I try to find former employees. I would try to look at the trends and go onto Google and do all the reading I could there. I'd come and look at the building and try to get to know the employees. You know, it was a little bit of a fanatical, obsessive, compulsive approach, but it also worked quite effectively. It really did. Now, again, the time aspect of that is crazy, but it was fun. I learned so much. Like, I couldn't believe how many times I would uh, have an opportunity in one space, let's say a food product. And so I'd call up a competitor and tell them. I was always very upfront. Look, at, I'm looking at investing in a company that competes with you. So it's a bit odd for me to be calling you. But you mind if I ask a few questions? People were incredibly helpful. They were almost eager to share and to pass on their knowledge. Or you'd find a competitor that was down in the United States, and therefore there wasn't much of a crossover. And they'd say, here's what you should be watching out for. And here's what I learned. And all those different types of things. It helped me immensely. And I loved doing that early, but I did find at one point that it was almost too much. And so maybe three or four years ago, I stopped doing a lot of private company investing. I've taken a few on lately, but I do far less than I used to. What do you think makes a good company? Is it about the people running it? Is it the business opportunity? Um, how, how do you assess what, what is a good company? Do I ever wish there was a checklist? You know, I could say, here's the five or six or seven things that you have to analyze. And if you can check the boxes on almost all of them, you're in good shape. But it's more art than science. I mean, it really, at the end of the day, more than anything else comes down to the people. There's no question about that. You've got to have people in good leadership positions who are passionate. You have to have your incentives aligned. You have to analyze the company from a lot of angles. So, for example, the company may look very good, but there's no true barrier to competition. And because their margins are, are quite fat, you know they're going to invite competition relatively quickly. I'm seeing that in the tech sector right now. I'm not a tech sector expert, expert but some of the multiples and some of the valuations the tech companies are getting are suggesting they're never going to have competition. And I don't think in many cases that's true. It may be true in the case of the Facebooks, et cetera, where they have a network effect. It's less true in terms of some of the hardware providers, for example. So I think you have to always be looking, how do they keep the competition out? What's going to happen to margins going forward? All of those types of things. A lot of the investments I made were in old-fashioned industries where I could understand them. And ideally, if you're investing in a private company, it's nice that you can play a role in helping them. You can actually influence your own returns. And so you find a product that you think is outstanding, and through your connections, you can expose it to Loblaws or home hardware or Lowe's, et cetera. And I think that that's a great part of private company investing in the smaller Space. But again, the time involvement is the part that's overwhelming, but it is a lot of fun. And I can't tell you how much I learned 
And everybody I dealt with in all those years I was doing the private company investing, both on the den and off the den, I liked every single person. I never met anybody where I didn't enjoy the relationship. I was very fortunate on that front. Yeah, that is important because if you're going to be working with people, uh, it's it's a lot better when you like them, uh, obviously. Uh, um, how would you describe your relationship with risk? Because The Wealthy Barber was about keeping things simple in a lot of ways and investing in a private business can be complicated and it can mean your money's tied up there for a while and it, it does mean a level of risk. So how do you square those, those things? I don't square them well. Uh, I've not been a big follower of a lot of the wealthy barbers advice on the investment front. I certainly followed all the advice in terms of saving 10%, being property insured, having a will, maximizing RSPs. So all those types of things. But then the wealthy barber also said, you know, just dollar cost average with X percentage of your income now into index funds. If you look at the wealthy barber returns and looked at all those options, I've tended to take a fairly good portion of my money and invest it back in my own companies or into private enterprises. And you point out that's much riskier, number one. And number two, there's no liquidity. And that's a great challenge, by the way. I mean, it really is. When you take minority stakes in all of these illiquid positions, you can sometimes look back a few years in and go, holy smokers, have I gone too far? with some of these, but in general, it's provided a good return. And again, I've really enjoyed it too. So it's been both a hobby and a way to invest money and you can have a direct impact, but I would say it doesn't align perfectly to what I taught. Now, again, remember my background is very different than 99.5% of my readers. I'm trying to help the readers with the book. My background is investing. And what I do now is look at these types of companies. So it makes sense that my investments wouldn't match up perfectly to what I taught the wealthy barber, because strangely, I'm not actually in the wealthy barber's target market with all the advice. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because, uh, and I think it's fair to say as well that you're also investing money. Some would say making bets uh, with money that I'm presuming you can afford to lose. I know you live a very modest lifestyle. You don't live in an extravagant lifestyle, even though you probably could. So you're not, you're not putting it all on the line. No, you're absolutely right. And you try to diversify broadly as well. And I think there's one position I have that I would say that almost many measures too big. But for the most part, I, I'm well diversified. And you're right. I live a pretty humble life. I, I don't do that, by the way. I think there's an assumption that because I wrote The Wealthy Barber and its primary theme was you better save. People assume I'm very thrifty, but I'm honestly not. I tend to give a lot of my money away to charities and get involved in all kinds of things. I live kind of a thrifty life because I don't like extravagant things. I don't like stuff. And I find keeping your life relatively basic and not owning a lot of things is better. And I'm not living, you know, a minimalist life at all. I'm lucky to have a cottage and I have a house is better, but I don't tend to do a lot of fancy things. And I, I think that's one of the reasons I've been happiest because I'm not stuff oriented. I'm not always competing and trying to have the biggest and the best. And I look at some of these houses now, I'm just driving today by a few houses that look to be seven and 8,000 square feet homes going up down here in Sarnia. And I'm thinking, holy smoke, like who would want seven or 8,000 square feet? My house is 1,300 square feet. I have a room I don't go in. And I think that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want that kind of huge house at all. Plus, I don't like company. So if you have a small house and a small cottage, nobody can come and visit you. That's perfect. <laughs> it all goes back to being a loner. Uh, <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, what, what's interesting about that to me is, is I have learned over time, and I heard somebody talking about this the other day, that... The gratification you get from buying stuff and adding it to your house is actually very short-lived, uh, and it, it only feeds more. It's, it's almost like a little bit of an addiction. There's, that's exactly right. I talked about that a lot in The Wealthy Barber Returns because I wanted to go at the psychology of all this, not just the what to do, but why don't we do it? Why can we make some changes to do it, et cetera? And the instant gratification society that we have where you grab a material possession, it gives you a short-term boost really is addictive. Unfortunately, it doesn't really stick with us and it doesn't make much of a positive difference in our lives. It does come down to friends and health and making a difference and growing and all those types of things. You know, just to go back to my father, I look at him and I've never seen a happier person in my life than my dad. And, you know, he had some challenges growing up and yet he's very happy. And I think a lot of it is curiosity is his closest friend. He's always trying to learn, always trying to learn to grow we talked earlier about how he tends to be able to move forward from bad things because he's focused on what can he do to make it better from here or make it the best it can be from here. But a great example of that is a few years ago, he was 84 at the time, he says, you know, I saw your old friend Danny Maui today. I took a, a golf lesson. My dad hasn't golfed in years. 
because of hip surgery. So I said, why would you take a golf lesson? He said, well, I was watching Jason Day chip and I like the way he chips with his hands forward. I was always a bad chipper and I don't want to die a bad chipper. So I'm taking chipping lessons. The guy doesn't even golf anymore. And he's taking <laughs> chipping lessons, but he's constantly doing stuff like that. Yeah. Like he's trying 80. to get better, trying to improve, you know, all of those types of things. And I mean, I think again, that's why he's such a joyful person. He really likes life and likes taking it on. Yeah, I know somebody who, th- this is going back a few years, but at the time he was 75, he was a business person here in Ottawa that I knew and had worked with and had invested in a company I was involved in. And um, and he was 75 and I he said he, we, were gonna, we were planning to meet and he said, I can meet at this time because I'm, I'm coming back from a skating lesson. And I said, what? you're taking skating lessons? And he said, yeah, I'd, I'd never learned to skate when I was younger. And so now I want to learn how to skate. And he was 75 years old. And I, uh, you know, I think that's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. You remember that story that we used to hear when we were kids about a woman, it was covered, I think, in Reader's Digest, where she said to her husband, I'm 60 years old. I, 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 I love musical uh, different things in my life, but I'm not very good at it. I'm going to learn to play the piano. But the problem is I'm 60. It takes 10 years to become a proficient piano player. I'll be 70 years old. And her husband said to her, how old will you be in 10 years if you don't learn to play the piano? Yeah. And I thought that's a great line. It always stuck with me. It's true. We can sometimes uh, talk ourselves out of these things because we're a little older, or a little too busy, but most happy people are picking up new hobbies. Hobbies have a hugely high correlation to happiness, as does gratitude, all of those types of things. And they're always pushing themselves a little bit more to grow. And I think that a lot of the stuff we should be teaching in the schools. I look at a lot of the philosophies that my father and mother uh, brought to life and have taught us. And I think it's too bad we're not teaching a lot of this type of stuff in school because I really do believe it could up people's happiness levels. Gratitude alone, people need to focus on more. You need to sit back and think about the good things in your life and how lucky we are to have a lot of them. And by the way, that's doubly important when you're going through horrible times. In fact, I have a couple of friends going through major battles with cancer right now. And they're in their early 60s. It's way too early for them to have to deal with this. And they're handling it with tremendous dignity. And one of the things that's helping them to get through it is They are thinking a lot about the positives, about what they're looking forward to post-treatment, about what they've been fortunate to experience already. And they're creating that more positive mindset. And obviously it's not easy and it doesn't cure cancer, but in general, I think it's a better approach. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I I had this thought recently that if if somebody paid you, if somebody came to you and said, I'm going to pay you a hundred bucks a day and I want you to write me a note at the end of the day telling me three things that you're really grateful for, uh, everybody would take that job, right? And yep. and the effect of having that job would be that you would have this great outlook about life because you'd spend the day looking around for things that you were grateful for, things of beauty, things in nature, things, you know, witnessing interactions between people, whatever. So you'd have this great benefit in your life from somebody paying you to do that. Well, why don't you just do it anyway without somebody paying you? Because you're going to get the benefit from that, right? It's absolutely true. And the scientific community has proven it's true. You know, in the old days, we used to say, well, let's say, does curiosity correlate with happiness or does it cause happiness? And these were tough things to figure out, but they figured out very creative ways to study that now with control groups, et cetera, and things like uh, gratitude, curiosity, et cetera. They truly do increase happiness. But things like buying more material possession, it really doesn't, unless it ties to experiences. And this is a subtle difference, but an important one. I'll give you an example of that. If you're going to renovate your home, interestingly, a kitchen renovation tends to provide more long-term happiness than a bathroom renovation. And it's because the kitchen renovation ties in to experiences. The family's all together in the open concept kitchen. Visitors are coming over. Friends are enjoying it. You're cooking, which is a great hobby for a lot of people. You can justify the expense a little bit more. In the bathroom, you're not really going through a lot of experiences with friends and family. At least I hope you're not, because that would be very odd. <laughs> and so as straightforward as that sounds, it's actually now been proven to be true through surveys done after the fact. So I'm not saying never renovate your bathroom. What I am saying is all these things should be thought through. It's one of the reasons why for a lot of people, cottages have been good investments. It's not the investment return. They're mixed. They've been very good lately, but they're mixed. And of course, it's expensive to own a cottage and not everybody can afford a cottage, a cottage, obviously. But for those lucky enough to have owned one, it's the experiences, the family togetherness, the friends visiting. That's been the big part of why the cottages has been such an, cottage has been such an important part of people's lives. Yeah, it's a great point. 
Yeah, I try to think about my kids are still uh, fairly young. And I try to think about what's what are their memories going to be when they're 30? Right? What are their memories going to be? And we, we got a cottage this year. And I hope that they will look back on this time and remember jumping in the lake and the and the joy of of that experience, you know, and that's there's no price on that, obviously, uh, if you can. Afford no, there it. really isn't. And it brings you together and it will when they're in their 20s and 30s as well. And I mean, that's, that's one of the great joys of that. It's much like grandkids. It's not just the joy of having a grandchild, but it brings everybody back together regularly because people need help and people want to see the grandchild, et cetera. And all of these things that tie us together. Of course, they're so, so important. Sounds hypocritical coming from a loner. So really, take all this with a grain of salt, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So uh, has any is, is there any way that you sort of practice all of these things to make sure that you you are think you you are thinking with gratitude or or does a lot of this sort of is has it become second nature for you now i think it's become second nature now because i was exposed to it growing up you know having the leadership of my parents and watching them do that on a regular basis and you know my dad would talk about perspective all the time so when you got really down about something he would say really the big picture of life are you kidding is that that important and he said you'll forget about it in a week and he was always talking about those types of things and uh, and I think that really helped to develop some of the skills. And then interestingly, writing about my father and writing about my mother a lot on Twitter and now in an upcoming book, that's helped me go back and think through the messages again. And I think it's made me more uh, likely to use them in my day-to-day life. So that's a good thing for sure. Just to give you an example of, of my father and you know what a character he was and how different he was the most. When I was in grade nine, this is odd, but I was only 12 years old in grade nine. And my sister was three years old or was supposed to take care of me for the weekend when my mom and dad had gone back to my grandma's in Sarnia. My sister took off for the weekend. She was quite wild. And I'm 12 years old. I'm home alone. So I phoned my grandma's house. My dad answers the phone. I said, hey, Susan took off. I'm, I'm here alone at the, at the house for the weekend. What should I do? And my dad said, well, you're in grade nine. I'd have a party. That was the end of that conversation. <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of my dad's like, figure it out yourself. And, you know, I, I told this story on Twitter, but this captures my father, too, when cell phones first got really popular, and almost everybody had one, you know, 15, 17 years ago, whatever. He's taking care of my kids, and they're 12, 13, and they're over at his place, and he and my mom are going out for dinner. And my dad says, uh, you know, you guys have phones, I have a phone, and if an emergency happens, solve it. He goes, don't call me, because <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. Figure it out yourself. And, I mean, that's the way I think more of us should be, but... We tend to be smothering of the kids now, obviously, and again, not let them fail. And so the line he had one time is that as a parent in previous generations, we obviously tried to walk close to our kids. And if the kids fell, if they needed help up, we'd be there. If they didn't need help up, fantastic. Stay a couple steps back. He said, now parents are walking so closely, they won't even let the child fall. And that's not healthy. You have to experience failure, but also you have to want to take risks. And therefore, you have to understand that failure comes with those. We need people to take risks, whether it's starting business or innovating in whatever role they're already in. And so I think a lot of this is very, very important. And fortunately for me, I I grew up in a household where my parents grasped all that very well and I think pushed us. I'm thinking more and more, David, I should have interviewed your dad for this podcast, maybe. (laughs) He's too busy. You'll never be able to track the guy down. He's 88 years old. He'll be able to play in bridge or go for a walk. He he says a couple months ago, we're all eating outdoors. We were eating outdoors one day. And, and my dad says, I'm really stiff today. And Courtney, my daughter says to him, well, why do you think that is? And he says, well, I drove to Toronto and back from Kitchener this afternoon. And when I got back, I hit a few balls and Scotty and I went for a walk. Yeah, I would hope you would be stiff. That's three <laughs> hours of hitting golf balls and going for a walk. But I mean, <laughs> you are 87 years old at the time. So yeah, you should be stiff. Amazing. You mentioned you're working on another book uh, and it's connected to your parents. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I'm talking a lot about the lessons I learned from them, the kind of chapter you read on Twitter about my dad's experience with Scotty in Paris, and just all the things over the years I've tried to pull from their lives and apply to my own. So it's short chapters. It's a lot of humor. It's all stories. Uh, So far, it's testing really well. I'm not self-publishing for the first time. I partnered with Simon & Schuster. I have too much on my plate. Plus, I love their senior editor. She's one of the most talented people I've ever crossed paths with. And so I'm not working on it very much right now because the new business is booming and obviously I have obligations there, but I'm hoping to get it done over the next 12 months and and get it out not too long after. And it's fun. You know, I mean, writing is very difficult and you've got to find the time. And I write in a different way. I do a lot of testing. So I'll write a chapter like the one you read on Twitter, but then I'll test it a lot of people to make sure it's drawing the response I want it to and making people laugh and making people think. And 
I garner their feedback and then make adjustments. And it's a slow process, but I think it's one that can lead to good results. So I, I'm enjoying working on that whole thing. This is the first time that I've done a book as more a side project than a full-time gig with Wealthy Barber and Wealthy Barber Returns. But because of other time demands, I can't go that route. Yeah. And, and that testing thing, I, I heard you talk about that once before, and uh, I think that's really powerful. And and we all need to do more of that, whatever it is we're doing, right? Whether it's writing or something else, show it to people, show your work to people, get their feedback, find out how they're going to react in the case of writing after it's published and make the make the corrections and adjustments before it's published instead, right? Uh, you know, I'll give you a classic example. It's from my field, but it could apply to a software coder, a musician, whatever. But I'll give you a classic example of that. I wrote a, quite a short chapter. It was only a page and a half of this book. And then underneath the last half page, I wrote four sentences to start something else out. And I sent a photo of the two pages, the page and a half, out to a whole bunch of people to test. And they all come back and say, I love that four sentence thing. You got to put that in there. And it was just like, I just scrambled it down. I wasn't even sure I was going to use it. It was the start of something. Now it's in there on its own because it got that kind of feedback. And so you're always trying to get your uh, different properties you're working on in front of your target audience. I mean, that's what you're trying to do is appeal to them. Well, let them tell you, let them help you during that process. Comedians like Chris Rock, one of the best comedians we've ever seen. He tests all this material in small clubs just to watch the feedback and hear the laughter, et cetera. Obviously, software coders have done that forever and a day, but for some strange reason, a lot of writers, nonfiction writers, don't do it. They feel they know their target audience so well they don't need to do it. I think that's a mistake. I think you can always be well-served by testing. Admittedly, though, it does slow the writing process down, no question about that. Yeah, and you got to be ready to listen to the feedback too, right? And a lot of people you are do. reluctant to do that. They don't, they want to, they don't want to hear it, you know, unfortunately. No, it's absolutely true. And I think you, you, you learn to develop a good sense for what's one person's opinion that may be off versus what's six people's opinion. And therefore, you better be a little careful here. And you're right. You have to be willing to take the criticism. But I've always felt, again, as corny as this sounds, that I work for the readers. And so they're going to dictate. And if I can get good advice from them about what's going to work and what's going to resonate and what's going to make them change behavior and think differently, I'd be a fool not to take that advice. I'd almost be a fool not to seek it out. And so I like that approach, but it does mean it's going to take you a lot longer to put a book together than a traditional approach where people are not doing that. Yeah. So just a few quick thoughts about personal finance uh, as we wrap up, David. Uh, has anything about personal finance, uh, the fundamentals, changed since you wrote The Wealthy Barber? Or uh, are things, you know, as much as there is now technology and, and all kinds of different investment products and so on, are the essentials uh, still the same? The essentials really are the same. I mean, you have to spend less than you make, obviously, and then you're trying to look for the best place to put those savings. And we've still got our RSPs, we've had TFSAs introduced, all of those types of things. I think in some ways it's harder now, certainly for younger people, even putting together a down payment for a home. Yes, the low interest rates offset some of the rising cost problem, but getting the down payment together is exceptionally difficult. And obviously, marketing has become more sophisticated, trying to, to convince us to spend money on things. I think debt being ubiquitously available, you can get credit almost anywhere now. That makes it tough to stay out of trouble as well. But the basic teachings, the basic fundamentals are the same as they've always been. Costs are coming down in the money management area. That's a positive for younger people who are going to be doing this for years and years. But a lot of this doesn't come down to very tricky things. In fact, the tricky stuff doesn't tend to work in personal finance and investing. It's old-fashioned, relatively basic concepts, but it's doing them regularly. It's sticking with them. It's staying emotionally detached. It's using common sense. All that sounds easy. Obviously, it's not, or we'd all do it, but it can be learned, and for most people, it can be done. It's very difficult on low incomes. I mean, people tell you there's not much inflation, but food inflation is very real. If you have a very low income, it's naive for us to think you're going to be able to save a lot. You've got to survive, and so that's a very challenging situation. What are the biggest mistakes that we make with our money? Well, I think a lot of the common ones we've heard about for years, certainly starting too late is a big one. Uh, you know, that if you wait until you're 40, 45, and 50 to start setting aside money, you've given up all those years of compounding. Now, it's tough to set it aside at a younger age because you have such a high, high expenses coming in. But that's something you have to do. I think some people are too aggressive with their money, but by the same token, some people are too passive. They put almost all their money in a low interest rate bank account and don't have the courage to deal with the volatility that the stock markets, for example, provide. A volatility that can be very gut-wrenching. A volatility that over a period of even multiple years can lead to very bad returns, negative returns even, 
but over very extended time frames, in all likelihood will give you quite solid performance. But it's tough sometimes to have the courage to do that. So all of these mistakes that we've seen forever, they're mostly behavioral mistakes. And so we always talk about how financial literacy is a problem. Well, it is, but I think a bigger problem is financial behavior, financial discipline. A lot of people out there understand the relatively straightforward basic principles, but they have problems implementing them because they are tough to implement. Human nature is pulling you in another direction. As I said in the Wealthy Barber Returns, remember, everybody out there wants you to spend money. All the shopkeepers want you to spend money. Your kids want you to spend money. The government, for the most part, wants you to spend money because it means to a, a stronger economy in the short term. So all of these different factors are pulling at you spending. It's tough to resist all of that. You want to keep up with the Joneses. You see all of your friends bragging on social media and showing off their new cars, showing off their renovated home. Well, how do you not get pulled into that? None of this is that easy. It's relatively straightforward, but it's not that easy. Last question, David. What advice do you give to entrepreneurs and business owners? Well, again, it's tough to give generic advice because every business is so different. Every industry is so different. But I do remind them of a few things. You've got to have tremendous grit. More than any other quality, that's the one that's going to lead to success. You are going to fall down a lot as an entrepreneur. I don't care how clever you are, from raising the funds to dealing with challenging customers to changes in the economy to new government policies to pandemics, something always is going wrong. In fact, many days, three things are going wrong. And you have to have that ability to scramble, to take on those challenges, you're never going to have a problem-free business. So let's try to have businesses with interesting problems or bring interesting solutions to them. But resilience and grit are probably the most, not probably, they are the most important qualities you can have as an entrepreneur. David, this has been great. I, I really appreciate uh, not just all of your advice and your perspectives on things, but your outlook and, and how you're able to share that, the stories of your dad and your family, the role of luck in your life, all of that. I think it's a really, really powerful lesson for everyone. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Enjoy it immensely. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy that conversation with David Chilton. I am a big fan. I'm very grateful for the fact that he has always responded to my requests for interviews because I always learn something whenever I speak with him. His perspective on luck and gratitude are very relevant to me. That is the subject of my TEDx talk. And that story about his father and getting to acceptance is really powerful. I've been thinking about that a lot. I also like David's approach to not trying to be happy by buying a lot of stuff. For more information about David and the amazing work that he has done, please see the show notes on our website. Once again, thank you to David Chilton for joining us on Digging Deep. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please review it and share it with others and subscribe as well. That will help us produce more great episodes. And if you want to keep digging deep into topics and lessons like this, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter and read my blog at letsdigdeep.com. Thank you for listening. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.